So this is week 35 of the study of the book of Hebrews. So we're closing in on the end. And it's been, for me anyway, a uh, faith-building study. And uh, like last week, we had this great encouraging message about this great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us. And their lives are recorded in part for us in the scriptures so that we might have these great examples of how to walk through life. It taught us that we should develop a relationship with God. All of these men... They didn't have the Torah. They didn't even have any written word of God. But what they had was a relationship with God. God spoke to them. And, he, uh, and they spoke back. They talked to God. And so we're taught by that. That we should develop that same relationship. If we want to be of the same faith of Abraham. We're to go to God with our concerns. Our questions on how to walk out this life. While we're in this foreign land. You know, I love messages like that that are so uplifting. But there is another side that he wanted to teach us about these men of great faith. So let's look at something else about this Hall of Fame of Faith, as it's called. We need to understand that those men's lives weren't all blessing and happy times. That these men had problems in their lives. In fact, it's the main point the writer of Hebrews wants to impart to these Hebrews. I thought the main point for us would be to develop relationship. I think that's what we need most because I'm going to be honest with you as we go through this today. We don't have the problems that the Hebrews are facing that he's writing this letter to. We just don't have those problems. But we need to have relationship. And he wants us to know that these men suffered. They had relationship with God. Abraham had relationship with God. Abel had relationship with God, but these men suffered. And he's going to point out it built these men's character. And it also helped them persevere through the trials of life. Something you have to keep in mind as you read this is the Hebrews in the land are suffering a persecution from the Sadducees because they are preaching a resurrection of the Messiah. The priests who are the Sadducees, don't believe in a resurrection. The priests who are the Sadducees, they don't believe in a resurrection. And not only that, but we can determine from the preaching of Stephen and Peter that they are laying the death of Messiah at the feet of the priests, where it belongs, and the Romans. It was the priests who tried him at night. Amen? The Romans who put him to death. And so they're suffering under the high priest, They're being denied access to the temple. And so you have to keep in mind as you read the trials that they're going through. That the author is trying to encourage and admonish them to hang on. Because there's a great reward at the end if they hang on. You know, we're going to talk about troubles today. And let me just say that while we do have troubles in our lives, there's nothing like what these Hebrews are going through. You know, it's very possible that at the time of the writing of this letter, James has already been put to death. So we're talking about some serious trials and tribulations that they're going through. So this is the other thing that the writer wants us to understand about these men of old. We talked about how they all had relationship with God. But remember, it spoke of Abel's faith and how he offered a better offering. And yet, for that better offering, it cost him his life. Slain by the hand of his own brother. 
And so right away, with the very first lesson, we learn how costly following God can be. Look at Noah. He was one of the Hall of Fame of Faith. God goes to him and tells him to build an ark, a huge boat, that will not only hold him and his family, but a whole lot of animals. Imagine the ridicule that he went through as he builds this ark over a period of years. I mean, the Bible is silent about what he endured as he built the ark, but we can read into that story a little bit. You know what I mean? I mean, Yeshua tells us a little bit of something about it. He says this in chapter 24, verse 36. He says, No one knows about the day nor the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them away. And so everyone else, except for Noah, who's told to build this boat in the middle of who knows where, probably not even any water around. Everybody else is unconcerned. You know, you can almost hear them saying, you know, this is a really great party you're having for your son and his new bride. Where's Noah? Well, I invited him. But you know that idiot is out building that boat. <laughs> so Noah persevered through hardship and through ridicule. And then there's Abraham. We always speak of Abraham's great faith and how God took care of Abraham. And it's true. But let's look, a bit, let's look at this in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 of Genesis. It says, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife had borne to him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. And so she said to Abram, Lord has kept me from having any children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai had said. And so Abraham, he forgets that God has told him. And he loses faith for a moment at his wife's pleading. And what do we get? We get Ishmael. And a whole lot of trouble for the world. Because what happens, we have born into the world a wild donkey of a man whose hand will be against everyone. How much is everyone? Everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility even toward his brothers. And we can see this today. Truer words were never spoken. A man that will plague the children of the promise to this very day. Not only the children of the promise, but everybody. And he'll continue right up to the end of days. How about this for Abraham? In chapter 20, verses 1 and 3, it says, Now Abraham moved on from there to a region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed at Gerar, and there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, She is... Of his, wife's, of his wife Sarah. She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is, married. she is a married woman. So where's the relationship all of a sudden? Right? Where's the relationship and the confidence when dealing with Abimelech? Now, remember... The writer of Hebrews, he didn't mention Joseph, but I threw him in last week. Because let's face it, Joseph, like nobody else in Scripture, is a man of great faith, you know. He's right up there with Abraham. Chapter 37 says, 
of Genesis in t- verse 25 says, As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. The camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. So here's Joseph. Things are going really good for Joseph. He's his father's favorite son, the eldest of only two sons given to him by his beloved Rachel. But things are a little too good for Joseph. His brothers are jealous and they sell him to Egypt to get rid of him. But Joseph develops a relationship with God. He gets to Egypt and he's placed over Potiphar's house. After all, you can't keep a good man down, particularly when he has a relationship with God, right? So let's, let's read on. It says, she took his cloak beside her until his master came home. Her, his master came home. Then she told him this story. The Hebrew slave you bought, came, uh, bought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And when his master heard the story of his, uh, his wife, told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. You see, here's the point. The point is, uh, things don't always go exactly the way you'd like them to go in life, right? I mean, I can almost hear Joseph as he sits in prison after he's put in prison. Lord, first my brothers sell me out. Now this woman puts me in prison. Where are you? Right? At least if I were Joseph, that's close to what I'd be saying. But we need to look a little farther into Joseph's life to get the full impact of all of this. Chapter 45, verses 4 and 5 says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now, I'm going to tell you, I don't think that was his attitude when he was going through all those trials, right? But in the end, he saw the plan and the purposes of God. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across. The point of all of this is life isn't always tea and Skittles. When you're going through the hard parts, but down the road, you can look back and you can see God's hand on your life. And you realize he was preparing you to do his will. He was building your character. He was setting you apart from the rest of the world. This is the Lord's training. And the writer of Hebrews is going to tell us it's the Lord's discipline. You know, discipline is training. Right? You are the Father's disciple. You are Yeshua's disciple. And he's all about training. He's a teacher. The father's a teacher. Yeshua is a teacher. It says, Yeshua said, 
If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, all Yeshua did was walk around Israel and teach. So you know what the Father is too, right? He's a teacher. So listen to what the author says next after laying out all of this with the Hall of Fame. He says, In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? And if you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not, then you, excuse me, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. And so what does he do? He quotes uh, the book of Proverbs here to tell us that our troubles in this life are the Lord's discipline. He's correcting our path. We got off on a wrong trail over here and he's correcting our path. He says of the hard things in life that we go through, we should endure and look for the Lord's lesson in all of it because the trials are the Lord's discipline. The King James, if you're reading King James, says chastisement. But I put the word up here and it says the whole training and education of children employs for this purpose now commands, admonitions, now reproof, and punishment. I like the NIV because it uses the word discipline. And of course, that word is related to the word disciple. And the Lord, through the things that we go through in life, is discipling us. He's training us. Oftentimes, as he trains us, because we got off of the path, he has set forth for us, we have to endure some punishment. And while we do, we don't always like it as we go through it. But then later on, just like Joseph, we can look back and see God's purpose for that in our lives. So the author is saying that troubles in our lives is the Lord either chastising us or allowing the world to chastise us. Here is a very interesting part, he says, that if we're not disciplined, if you don't have some trouble in your life, some things to overcome, then you're not true sons. You're illegitimate. And the word there is actually says bastard. It was the various, uh, it, it, it was the various forms of discipline that these men in the Hall of Fame of Faith encountered that shows us exactly how they persevered and how their character was developed. And I could give you some examples of things that I've had to go through and, and the congregation has had to go through the years, but I'm not going to do that today. But really makes you wonder, right? Here's something that makes me wonder anyway. When you see Christians whose lives seem to be so wonderful that there's no discipline in their lives, as it says, of those who are not disciplined, are they legitimate children? It makes you wonder, doesn't it? I mean... You can't judge by such things. And we don't know all the circumstances in their lives, but it certainly makes somebody think now and then. Listen to verse 9 of chapter 12. Moreover, we all have human fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? 
our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful later on. However, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. And so he uses a Colva-Homer argument. If you're not familiar with that, it's an argument that argues from the least to the greatest. He says, if your natural fathers disciplined us to correct our walks through life, and we at the time, we didn't appreciate it, but later we realized the love and the concern of our father, and we appreciated him for that discipline, then how much more should we understand and submit to our heavenly father's discipline? How much more should we look for the blessing and the lesson of that discipline? And unlike how we felt about our earthly father's discipline, we should rejoice in God's discipline, as we're going to see in a little while. He's arguing from the light, our father's discipline, to the heavy, God's discipline. Our father's discipline corrected our character and our walk through this life. But God is preparing us for an eternal place with him to reap a life of holiness. As he is holy. He's training us to be like him. I'll let you in on a little secret for a happy life. And that is learn to recognize the Lord's discipline, accept his discipline, and change the direction of your life ASAP. The same way you changed under your natural father's discipline. When he gave you that big spanking, I bet you didn't go out and run out and do that thing again. So you change so that you don't have to endure that discipline further because it's probably going to get worse. This is also part of the beauty of relationship with God. You can inquire of him about the trouble in your life. Recognize it and ask for the new direction, the directions that would be pleasing to God and save yourself some more discipline. Because I don't know about you, but I don't like discipline. We all want to walk by, like God and walk with God and like God and have him teach us his ways. But let's face it, discipline is not pleasant. Anyone here like a good spanking? No? Nobody likes a good spanking. Notice he says, the father of our spirits in live. And he's going to continue on with that in a minute. But So the point of all of this is this discipline of the Lord is not pleasant but then it's not supposed to be and again the author says that those the Lord discipline does not discipline our true sons it's more than likely why James says this if, if, if you're not disciplined you're not true sons he says consider it pure joy brothers whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and not lacking anything. Now, I don't know about James, but I never uh, consider discipline joy. But so again, but James tells us one of the things we should get from reading of these men is that they developed perseverance, the perseverance that they needed to run the race that they had to run. And James can, says, consider it joy. And I, like I say, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to consider discipline joy. 
You know, I remember when I was a young man, a young boy, not a young man, but a young boy, and my dad said to me, go to your room, and I'll be in there in a minute to give you your spanking, right? I didn't go into my room and break into my happy dance, right? (laughs) And with the Lord, it's the same. But here James tells us to consider it joy. Look for the lesson in it and consider it joy. And it's why Yeshua tells us this in in Matthew 2. Verse 10, he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. According to the writer of Hebrews and James, we are to consider it joy because the Lord's discipline tells us that we are legitimate sons and that we have a goal ahead of us. There's a promise ahead of us if we continue on in the lesson. Amen? He's going to get to that in a moment, the promise. Yeshua tells us, consider it joy because he's preparing a kingdom of heaven if we endure. A father does not discipline, uh, you know, a father does not discipline children who aren't his. He disciplines the ones he loves, his own children. And so he tells us, rejoice in the Lord's discipline. But he's also going to tell us now how to avoid it. In verse 12, he says, therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet. So that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and, be, and, and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See, what he actually does here is he quotes Isaiah 35. And he's quoting Proverbs 4 to tell us how to avoid some discipline. Amen? How many want to avoid discipline? I do. We don't get the understanding of what he's really getting at here because he just quotes a small portion of Isaiah 35 in verse 3. But, you know, like we should understand that they didn't have Isaiah 45 verse 3. But they only had, or 35 verse 3, they only had Isaiah. So if you wanted to draw somebody's attention to a particular portion or a particular chapter, you just quote a little piece of it, and they should know the rest, right? So let's read a little bit more of it. It says, The desert and the parched land will be glad, and the wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice and greatly shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, and the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of reading to understand what he's talking about here, right? What did Yeshua say? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom here. Isaiah is speaking of the restoration of all things, and he says that the deserts will be with water, fertile, like the plains of Sharon. It will be, they will bring forth trees like that of Lebanon. That's the glory of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon. God is going to restore the fortunes of the land and his people. So Isaiah says, and here's our quote. He's telling his people to hang on. Strengthen your feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear, for your God will come 
And he will come with a vengeance and with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf stop unstop. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth from the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool and the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. These people are suffering. And, they are, and the writer is trying to tell them to hang on because there's a reward ahead. He's pointing out to the words of Isaiah to say, hang on, because the Lord is coming and he's going to make things right. Straighten yourselves, even as Abel, Noah, and Abraham. Then in verse 8 he says, and a highway will be there and it will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will, be not, they will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransom of the Lord will return. And they will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their foreheads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. What a great passage to preach to some people, to, to draw their attention to this passage who are suffering under persecution. To teach the readers, hold on, God will restore and the present troubles will lead you into the paths of righteousness for you have found the way of holiness in Messiah Yeshua. Remember, what did the disciples call themselves? The way. Let's read a little farther. Let's read a little bit of, uh, he, of Proverbs 4 because he quotes that. Well, he actually quotes 26, but I want you to, I want to read verses 1 through 4 before we read that. It says, Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding, and I will give you sound learning. So do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, still tender, and only a child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart and keep the commands and you will live. See how he begins to pay attention, draw their attention to the Father's instruction again, the Father's instruction for his disciples. And if you read on, he's going to next, for the next few passages, talk about the wisdom that's imparted to your life. It's all about wisdom in the next few verses. And then following that, he says this, our quote, Make level paths for your feet and take only ways that are firm and do not swerve to the right or to the left. Keep your foot from evil. And so these are really some perfect quotes out of Scripture to teach the lesson that he's trying to teach these uh, Hebrews living in the land of Israel. He says, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. In other words, those areas of your life that aren't strong in the Lord, work on them. Strengthen them. Make level paths for your feet. In other words, keep your halakha pure and holy in the commands of the Lord. And if you fail in some area, go to work on that area. Strengthen yourself. And yes, it's hard. I remember Julie was talking about John was trying to get her to strengthen her arms this weekend. <laughs> She did 20 or so, and he said, do another 25. It's hard to work on things. 
especially as you get older, right? Because you're so set in your ways. It's, it says, live at peace with all men, if that's possible, and be holy, set apart to God. Don't conform to the world, because if you do, you're not going to see the Lord. Amen? And then he says, see to it that no bitter root grows up among you. And what does he mean by that? Well, he kind of sandwiches that statement between holy and live in peace on the one side and then a whole list of self-indulgent sins on the other. And we can take this a couple ways. And, you know, I've spoken about how bitterness before and unforgiveness, how it makes your life bitter. It keeps you actually from living at peace with your brothers, which is the first half of the sandwich. And then... We have a very similar, for the second half of the sandwich, we have a very similar statement in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 16. It says, You yourselves know how we lived in Egypt and how we passed through the countries on the way here. You saw among them detestable images and idols of wood and stone and silver and gold. Make sure there is no man or woman, clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord your God to go and worship the gods of those nations. And make sure there is no root among you that produces bitter poison. And so we can take this to mean, hang on and don't rebel. A bitter root will lead you to rebellion. It can be unforgiveness. It can be self-indulgence, which he'll point to next, as he says in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 12. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. And so he uses... Esau as an example of one who did not value the valuable things in life that which was valuable he didn't value it until it was lost he sold it what was precious for something to relieve his hunger in the moment and so while the lesson for the week is not as uplifting it's not as faith building as we spoke of for the last two weeks this relationship with God that's available to us but it's uplifting in that it teaches us the wisdom of enduring hardships in life because God is teaching us through those things. Amen?